This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello, and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, lifestyle editor for The Pulse, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, content editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, uh, kind of relaxing a little bit after Labor Day weekend. It's uh, it's fall time. It's all sorts of things are different now. Like I came to work on Tuesday and I was like, it's a different world now. It is. Door is County that, changes. Is that how you feel too right after Labor Day? Yeah. I mean, I went straight into the hoodie. And now it's just part of the attire. It's it's my office attire for the rest of the fall. That's yeah. I've I'm sure I've talked about shorts guy before on the podcast, where there are people who like first day of spring shorts come on. They don't change to pants until I don't know Thanksgiving. Probably mm-hmm. that's the shorts guy. Are you hoodie guy? Once the hoodie's on, I it's mean, permanent. I kind of like to wear the hoodie all the time. Like I, I'm a guy who likes to be warm. Like even when you don't need gloves. I wear gloves. My wife's like, why are you putting gloves on? I'm like, I, my hands want to be warm. And I go for runs. I, I kind of like winter running for the sake of bundling up, yeah. even though it's freezing outside. So yeah, I like the hoodie. I like throwing it on. It gives me comfort. It's like a hug. Yeah. A, a hoodie's like a hug. You should print that on hoodies yeah. <laughs> and make some money off of that. Um, but yeah, it is uh, post Labor Day. I never used to feel it. I definitely feel it now. I feel really? it in like going out and just seeing traffic in the streets. There's so much less. Being yeah. able to cross the street right away without waiting, those types of things. And it's immediate, too. The sun feels different. Yeah. Every, I mean, well, the weather that we've had this week has been, you know, cold and damp. And it was yeah. like, hey, it's it's fall, so here we go. But, like, I, I used to not really think of September as fall time. Now I'm, like, uh, that's the hill that I'm dying on is it's fall time now. Well, it, my wife was saying as we were walking around at Marina Fest over the weekend in Sister Bay, there's just, like, you know, it's the same sky. It's the same sun. It still was 75, 80 degrees ish. But she was saying how like the sun has a distinct feel in the fall that just is like a fall sun. And it's probably just where the sun lies in the sky and how the seasons change. I mean, that I guess is weather and seasons and calendars, all yeah. that stuff. But it does. It's like a bright sunny day in fall feels different than a bright sunny day in July. Right. Even if the temperature is the same. Do you have a preference? Are you Do you like summer? Do you like fall? What's your favorite? I mean, I'm, I love fall. Like fall is like the September is one of the best times to be up here. Things like you said, they tail off just slightly, but it's not slow. Yeah. It's not like depressingly empty. Um, Still a lot of things not, open, might be able to get on the water like one last weekend. A few friends might have a little bit more time this year. However, maybe not. Although I think some places have just thrown up their hands and like this morning I was going to meet somebody for coffee. And I didn't know that heirloom didn't open till 830. We tried to meet there at eight. It's too early. Okay. So we go to bearded heart. Well, they're now closed Tuesday and Wednesday because they don't have, I assume because they don't have enough staff and that just kept happening. We ended up going down to the the 57 depot for our cup of coffee after trying four places, which was fine. I love the 57 depot. It's a great view staring at the water, but um, you know, it's, so now some of these people who otherwise would be working six, seven days a week, they are found a way around it, not by finding staff because that doesn't exist almost anywhere in the country, um, but by just closing their doors a couple of days. Right. 
So <laughs> it, it definitely does feel a little bit different. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, things are changing soon. The colors will change and fall will be like fully upon us. Uh, but there's a lot of change that's happening in, in Door County. There's a lot of things that changed this year. There's still a lot of change still on the horizon. One change that I noticed in Bailey's Harbor this week was that Wally's weenie wagon had moved over to Cornerstone. And I was wondering why that was. And then I saw the article uh, about Lakeshore Adventures and their housing project. And that may have something to do with it. So walk me through what this project is. Well, first of all, and I'm going to ruin your segue in the um, process of praising it. That was amazing, Andrew. That was an incredible walkthrough from one subject to the other. Thank you. I heard you say change and I was like, boom, here we go. It's like poetry. If there's one thing I'm good at, it's hosting the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not knowing what I'm talking about or anything, just hosting, the, the duty of hosting, getting us from one step to the next. I will hang my hat on that. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because as your boss, I was really struggling to figure out what that thing was. Well, now, Sorry, now we know. I'm just kidding, Andrew. You're great at many things. Um, Thanks for ruining my segue. <laughs> Tell me about this housing project, Miles. Um, so uh, Lakeshore Adventures. Um, if people don't know where that is, if you're staring at the Cornerstone pub in the center of Bailey's Harbor and you look to the left of it along Highway 57, Lakeshore Adventures is located in that little building that kind of looks out of place because there's like a big parking lot around it and then this small little roundish building that used to be the Associated Bank until that closed uh, about 11 years ago, maybe 12. It was right around the time the recession just crushed all sorts of things. Um, so there was a little associated bank outlet there, which seems really weird now to think you could do your banking in Bailey's Harbor. Right. I know that there's an ATM there still. Yeah. And that's the, that's the holdover from the bank. That is now Bailey's Harbor's bank. Do ATM, like once they're placed, do they have to stay there forever? Because (laughs) the Nicolay Bank in Fish Creek closed, but their ATM is still available. That is their way of having a branch location. Right. (laughs) Um, without any actual, I just people. thought that once you like installed one, it was permanent. Like yeah, there's like in. three tons of concrete anchoring it down, so there it can't be, be stolen. So Lakeshore Adventures is located in that building, and Todd Helene, um, a local guy born and raised up here, he was looking at ways to expand his business. And like any business owner, he's also got this housing problem with trying to attract employees. And what he is going to do, and the demolition will begin September 13th. Going to tear that building down and actually rebuild a retail and housing structure, which is kind of like a what I would call my dream project. Like I always wonder why so many places in the center of towns build one-story structures with nothing above them. And every time I see them, I'm like, hmm, for 60% more money, that whole second story could be housing units. Like you could have 25 beds up there above Al Johnson's. Okay. Yeah, which is something that's commonplace in the cities, right? Yeah. I mean, most most places are retail on the first floor and office space or residential above. Yep. So I like, mean, think of Third Avenue and Sturgeon Bay. Yeah. Um, if I could wave my czar of Door County wand, I would, I would just like make that a prerequisite for all development. I, if I were running a town, I'd say, okay, you can do a little bit more with your property. We will give you a leniency on a setback or on, you know, X, Y, and Z. And you just have to put in five housing units up, upstairs or hotel door. You can go ahead and have your four story, but you have to put in four units for your staff to live on site. Like that kind of thing. And I think it's actually, that might have been legislated out of, I'd have to double check this, but I do think that they've, they've made the, the Wisconsin state legislature has made it very hard for communities to do those sorts Hmm. of mandates. Um, But if I could just wave that wand, that's one of the things I would do. And then suddenly you would have a downtown with people living there, walking around and just grabbing coffee and needing 
just a bike maybe or walking to work and less car dependent and we'd have a ton of housing. But anyway, so that is <laughs> this project is a little bit of that in that Todd is rebuild going to tear it down, rebuild and will be the home of Lakeshore Adventures, which is a kayak and tour guide and fishing um bunch of different things he does out of zip lines out of that location. And then there will be two additional retail spaces that he will rent out. And then upstairs will be 11 housing units. And of those 11, I think four he has slated to be year-round units. And he says, he, you know, yeah, he'd love to do 11 year-round units, but he needs seasonal units so he can get his seasonal help. So he needs, in peak season, he said he had about 30 employees. So he needs like seven of those units that would, you know, house a couple of people each so that he can staff himself for the summer. And the two of the... Some of those units will also be reserved for those retail uh, businesses. So that's kind of his pitch to attract the retail is, hey, you can you rent from me. You have the housing above that you have access to and that you have dibs on. So it's a helps him sell the retail and get the housing for himself. Right. Yeah, that's a really interesting project. I, I actually missed the part about the the retail units on the bottom. So that would be potentially, you know, two more businesses to move into Bailey's Harbor. Yeah. Which would be cool. I mean, two in a in a place with as few businesses as Bailey's Harbor has. And then this has changed over the years considerably. Mm-hmm. But adding two more businesses right downtown, that's that's pretty big. And that's where you want development. You don't want right. to sprawl out into the countryside. You want it you want urban infill, um, if you want to call Bailey's Harbor urban. But for the purposes of Door County, we'll call it urban. Um, that stretch too is sort of what a lot of people would refer to as a missing tooth kind of property in that yes, Lakeshore Adventures there, but most of the highway frontage is the parking lot and a big yard. And so there's a kind of a big open gap between Cornerstone Pub and Door County Brewing Company. This provides a little more fill there, makes it more walkable. It will also overlook whatever happens with the Nelson's property, which I, I don't know what that is yet. That that committee is still deciding what to do. I'm guessing that building will be torn down and that will be a park of some sort. So, um, you know, it's going to be affordable housing for workforce that's overlooking the water, which is pretty cool, I think. Yeah, for sure. So is this a done deal? Did it pass everything or is there still yeah, more? It's, to- it's approved. He actually, Todd had applied for and received a $250,000 grant for the housing component of this from the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. So he's getting some support from the state to build this. Um, And the town has signed off, actually helped him apply for that grant. And there's also some kind of traffic flow improvements that will happen here. Right now, if if Todd is running one of his tour guides or tour groups out of that business, they enter uh, off of 57 and they go back onto 57. Now traffic with this new building will be flowed to come out onto Highway F behind the Cornerstone Pub. So uh, then they would go wherever they need to go from there. Might be turning left north on 57 or south. But at least you don't have like two driveways coming and going in that little property in addition to the Cornerstone pub parking lot. So it's a, it, it alleviates another, it's a minor aspect of it, but it does eliminate one traffic issue. Right. Is that kind of like, uh, like when you're going down the hill in Fish Creek, there's that turn behind the park that you can kind of go and that connects back to Highway 42. Is it yeah, kind of that the, same idea? The secret workaround? Yeah. Don't tell people about this. That, that's where I, that's my first look for parking, actually. Yeah, that's where I, it, same thing here if I go into Fish Creek. And also if I, if I see traffic backed up at that stop sign at the bottom of the hill and you see a lot of pedestrian traffic, you get around that by duking around in the backside. So hopefully most people don't understand what we're talking about and it can stay ours. Right. Um, 
the last thing I wanted to mention about this particular project is there the only controversy that I've seen about it is based on the design of the building. I don't mind the design at all, but what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I don't mind either. And it's, it's tough because his renderings are not, uh, you know, Todd's not a developer with a, um, this huge design team working on these colorized render, renderings of the property and everything. So it looks a little more basic. Um, he's tried to design it. There's, there's some funky things he had to do because generally to do this kind of development, you would need a sprinkler system. But he found some workarounds in the building code where if he had to put additional stairwells onto the property because um, each, each unit, residential unit, needs two exits. So he had to put four stairwells around this building to provide two exits and also provide some of the firewall functions in the build in the construction style so that he wouldn't have to put a sprinkler in the building. Because if you put a, if you're on public water, a sprinkler is more doable to, to do. Do you, do you understand what I mean when I say a sprinkler system? Yes. I'm not talking about watering the grass. I'm talking about the sprinkler, the fire suppression system inside the apartment. Right. I'm glad you clarified because that <laughs> I, I knew what you're talking about, but that makes sense to clarify it. <laughs> um, it's not, not, it's not that he, they make you really water your plants. So he had, to put those stairwells in that, that saves them. And, you know, a lot of builders have told me like that can be a hundred thousand dollars. And then since Bailey's Harbor doesn't have public water, you have to provide that through like a cistern or, and which is an added expense to try and do a sprinkler system. So doing those extra stairwells, he had to then find a way to not just have the stairwells be kind of like the, the prominent feature on the sides of the building. So you have to do some encasing, which means you have to save costs in other areas by finding other construction methods. So that is one thing that he had to coordinate into this project that may be a little different and may not be as obvious when you're just looking at it on a piece of paper. The other thing is, you know, my bar for housing is going to be lower <laughs> than, um, than almost any other type of business because if somebody wants to make the effort to try and provide housing and this is going to be um, seasonal housing and then also pretty affordable housing i, I think the, the idea is for it to rent for about 500 dollars per person per month um how that works out depends on who lives where and which units end up in in which stock sort of within the building but yeah and the the big question with any architecture is does it fit in with the town and I don't know that Bailey's Harbor has a really strong identity visually one way or the other. Architecturally. Yeah, it'd be really hard to find the, the and maybe somebody knows this, I'd love to, to hear if, if there is a consistent thread between, say, the Harbor Fish Market, the Cornerstone Pub, the Blue Ox, and the Florgan. Yeah. <laughs> if somebody can tie those all together, um, I'd love to see it. Well, and that, that's the thing too, like your town's character changes over time with new additions. And the bigger those additions are, the more of an impact they have on how people perceive the character of it so like i think of egg harbor and how much its character has changed in the last couple of years with the crest pavilion uh, one barrel hatch shipwrecks new expansion looks completely different than it used to so you have one or two large developments with a, a new character a new visual language to them uh, and, and pretty soon you have a different character for the town. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? It's just right. an evolving look for something. Um, if, if you wanted to argue like what the look is for Sister Bay, that's getting harder and harder as time progresses because like you go up the hill, there's a pretty consistent visual language, but then you go to the bottom of the hill and it's drastically different. And even when they, back in 2007, when they were doing community-wide visioning sessions, that was one of the things that they struggle with in Sister Bay is they've never really had like a, a consistent thing. Everyone was always jealous of Fish Creek because, and Ephraim, because Fish Creek had a, a look and a feel. And mostly that was walkability in Fish Creek and Ephraim 
it was just like kind of the, the old white buildings. Um, Sister Bay had, was a hodgepodge because it was more of a business corridor, you know, lumber yard, car, car sales shop, gas stations, manufacturing plant, all on that highway. A bunch of hardware survey, like three or four hardware stores. So it was a different kind of town. It was more of a year-round village, not a resort town. So it didn't have a consistent, what you call the, uh, what do you call a visual language, um, which I like. I'll yeah. steal that. Um, but, you know, now, you know, some people even said like, well, should we, should we follow the footsteps of Al's? Should we do more of like the old log building? That, that, that was actually part of the discussion of like, okay, if that's our most prominent building and most well-known building, should we run that through the town? And every, the, the answer for most people was like, nah, no, let's not like, let's not be unauthentic about it. You know, let's, let's not just be Disneyland about it. So, well, Miles, let's take a break. And then when we come back, I want to chat a little bit more about a couple other housing projects or, or, or things that are rumbling behind the scenes in affordable housing. Uh, we'll talk about the Alzheimer's walk that's coming up in Sturgeon Bay, and then we'll check in on what's going on with COVID. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Miles, would you consider yourself a writer? Uh, for a living? Yes. Would you consider yourself a photographer? A mediocre one. All right. Do you think that, uh, you have what it takes to enter the HAL prize? Only if they were going to award me prizes for pictures of my child, which is all I take pictures of now. That is uh, maybe a possibility. The HAL Prize writing contest is uh, fast approaching. The deadline for submissions is September 15th. Anything people need to know about the HAL Prize, Miles? Enter it. If you have any thoughts of being a writer or fancy yourself a photographer, uh, prove it. Write something and submit it. We have three categories. There is poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. And then we have the photography contest. And the deadline is September 15th. There is a very small fee to submit your entries. And uh, there's some great prizes. That is absolutely correct. You can submit your entries at thehowprize.com using the submittable form on there. It's quick. It's easy. And uh, you have no reason not to submit. If you win... You win $250 and publication in the inaugural 8142 review. And you also get the Hal Prize mug. Which is an awesome mug and it it holds things, mostly liquids. So once again, that is uh, thehowprize.com for your submission in writing or photography. And the deadline for that is September 15th. Can't wait to read what you've written. Okay, we are back. We did that ad read live. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I might have botched it, but... Good, good effort. No, I think we did a great job. I didn't warn you. That. I didn't warn you about it <laughs> beforehand at all, which is kind of my mo. I like. I get. That's how I get the best out of people. Is just spring it on them. So let's uh, let's continue our housing discussion a little bit. Is there anything else going on right now in terms of other potentials for affordable or seasonal housing? Yeah, there's um, there's one thing actually in the works, and there's one thing that's uh, an idea, and the the idea is um, something I wrote about this for this. Friday's issue of The Pulse, and I talked to Steve Jenkins at Door County Economic Development Corporation, and he is kind of pitching towns on this idea of trying to get investors to build a facility that would create modular homes down in Sturgeon Bay. So you would create a facility that would then create jobs here, building the homes, and then you would create these homes that would be much more affordable and maybe create crank out as many as 50 homes a year for the Door County market. Um, modular homes would be ones that are fabricated, uh, like in a big facility and then just move to the site where the foundation would be poured and this modular home would be plopped on it. There are, you gain a lot of efficiencies by not having to build through weather conditions and build that, bring that team out on site and you can build them much more affordable, affordably, maybe in the 80 to $120,000 range 
potentially. Is it, that's what uh, kind of some numbers that Steve threw out there for relatively small, simple homes that could be used for seasonal workforce housing, year-round housing, um, rental homes, or things like that. Um, he generally talked about this in terms of single-family homes. Um, and he, what he told me is it's clearly not the solution. Who knows yet if it's viable? You'd have to get investors. It'd be a $2 million facility. Um, and then you have to get people to buy the homes. But it's an interesting idea. And I, I think of, I read it as like, hey, it's good to put all sorts of ideas on the table and see what can stick. Right. Uh, especially, you know, this is something that would create jobs, mm-hmm. um, create uh, a demand for people to come up here. And if you're lowering the cost of entry by half in some ways, like when you think about the cost of land plus, you know, $100,000 modular home, that's that could, that's close to half of what a comparable uh, house would be on the market right now. Yeah. Um, so that, that definitely opens doors quite a bit. And for people who've been around the housing market for a long time, modular for a long time just meant low quality for a lot of people. And in fact, it was harder to get loans for modular homes. They've come a long way. There are some really cool designs. They're not as cookie cutter as a, well, I I suppose they are cookie cutter. I mean, they literally are sort of like factory built, but they don't look the same way as they maybe used to. Um, And they seem, you know, in a lot of places, a higher quality build, um, depending on what you're comparing it to. I don't know enough about construction to like, I'm not trying to <laughs> throw anyone under the bus there. Um, but you know, they, they're a different thing than we might've thought of in terms of modular homes 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. Yeah. I, I didn't know a lot about them, but I did know that they were considered a dirty word yeah. in, in like the housing sector. But I also know that as technology improves, things get better and things that may have been ahead of their time uh, are are different now, you know, it's probably the, the technology is a lot better to create these things in a way that is still affordable, but is, you know, up to standard. I also know that, uh, like zoning and coding laws have changed considerably over the last 30 years. So, I mean, you can't really get away with making a crappy house, uh, the way that you technically could before everything was updated. Absolutely. So when you're, when you're buying a home, there is kind of a, Uh, When you're buying a newer home, there is a guarantee that things are up to code. And then uh, Steve Jenkins said that this would also, in addition to like bringing jobs here, it would also be a training facility. So, you know, there's the construction and and trades industries are struggling to find help just like everybody else. And this could serve as like a training ground for some of those workers um, right there in certain Bay. So you kind of kill a few different birds. You have a, you're creating kind of a new company. Um, you are, and, and what Steve Jenkins said is that they'd be trying to bring in somebody to operate this facility. It's not like DC, DC would necessarily be like, Hey, we're going to operate it. Um, so you create a new company, you create jobs, you create an educational training center and you and you start making a dent in the housing problem. Um, so it's a pretty interesting idea. It's very early stages. What Steve Jenkins said is they are now applying for grants, trying to generate interest among employers potential investors. And if this doesn't work, they might try and work with a company that does this out of Sheboygan that just built a plant to try and get some homes up here. So very early stages, but an interesting idea. Another idea that's uh, on the table right now is Paula Anschutz, who some people might know from the Sister Bay Bowl. She is working diligently to try and save some of the cabins from the Little Sister Resort, what used to be Fred and Fuzzy's and the Little Sister Resort. Um, Try and move those cabins to a property where she will have some um, seasonal housing for their staff at the Sister Bay Bowl and maybe overflow housing for other people, uh, other businesses. And 
So she's been working to try and move a bunch of those old cottages to her property. And then simultaneously, the Sister Bay Historical Society has been working to try and save the old barn that's on that property. And apparently it is a barn that is pretty rare. There's only two or three in the state that are constructed the way this one is constructed. And when Lance Crane first pitched his idea of, of his proposal to buy that property and then build a private home, Denise Berto on the Sister Bay Village board had made a point at that time of saying like, well, I really want to see if we can save this barn. And it looks like there's some push to do it. So the Sister Bay Historical Society is trying to raise $300,000 to move that barn to their property um, along Highway 57. And I think it's Fieldcrest Road in Sister Bay and make a new like history center there out of this old, kind of repurpose this old barn into this new project they were already pursuing um, before this came about. So there's kind of a fundraising component for history to preserve that barn. And then there's what Paula Anschutz is doing, um, which is just trying to save those cabins and kind of create historical affordable seasonal housing. Yeah, that's interesting. That idea of like taking these old buildings and not only preserving them, but repurposing them to solve another problem. Yeah. Um, when we when we were really tackling the, the housing issue a couple of years ago, um, when I kind of first started digging into it for the first time, the big thing that stood out to me, I think you may have said it, is that the solution to this is not one thing. It's a patchwork of different things coming together to all collectively fix this. Right. And I think this is a great idea, right? You, you get to save a piece of history, you get to repurpose it into something new, and it, it makes a dent in one of our biggest problems. Yeah. And it's, it's a risk. I give uh, Paul Andrews a ton of credit. Um, you know, as a, one of the younger adults up here, she was saying, and she had this comment to me that was pretty poignant. She goes, you know, I, I'm looking around and like a lot of people like, Hey, when is somebody going to do something about the housing issue here? Like, where are the adults? When are they going to step up? And then she goes, then after a while you look around and you go, well, all right, now I'm the adult and this problem's still here. And I'm the adult. I have to step up and I have to do it. So she's, I've been talking to her a lot throughout this process and there's been a lot of hurdles um, to try and even find out who to talk to about getting the cabins um, from the Crane property. There's been a lot of hoops to jump through and she's been jumping through them. And that's one of the things to make something important happen and to make something good happen. It usually isn't a straight line. And um, she's been working really hard at it. I hope it comes to fruition. There's still some steps to go. So We'll post more of it on DoorCountyPulse.com. I'm sure we'll talk about it more on this podcast. And um, we'll be talking to the Sister Bay Historical Society about their efforts to save that barn as well. So if, the, if at the end of the day, you look at these three issues we've talked about, Tadalane creating 11 housing units down in Bailey's Harbor. If Paula Andrews is able to do this in Sister Bay and get um, housing for anywhere from 8 to 12 people on her property, and then if this modular home project comes up, comes about like those are three different entities taking three different approaches that are starting to chip away at the problem at least in those couple of communities now they need some people to step up in other communities the other thing that's happened in sister bay is the village has agreed to sell paula andrews a property at the market rate where she can move a fourplex that could also um house anywhere from, I think, 8 to 16 people back behind the Northern Door Children's Center in an area back there. So another stab, Sister Bay trying to help facilitate things happening there. Um, a lot still up in the air. They've got to move those buildings and find the money to, like, in, in Paula's case, she's going to have to invest a, a chunk of money to move all these buildings and then get them plumbed and wired and electrical and everything. So um, there's a lot of steps uh, between 
now and having people living there, but it looks like the wheels are turning. Yeah. This is, you probably don't have an answer for this, but I'm just curious. How many units do we need to see to make a big dent in this problem? You know, what I tell people a lot of times is, you know, that housing study that came out in 2018, I think, um, in Northern Door between rental, senior, and homes for purchase, I think it's somewhere, you know, some the, the countywide, it was somewhere in the four to 500 units range. And I bet you that number has only gone up as Airbnb has taken and vacation rentals have taken other units off the market. Um, and then the county's just busier. So there's more employees that we need to house. So it's a lot, but I think you make a substantial dent. And I don't think the answer is like, yes, we must build 700 units or we must build 600 units. Um, there's an equilibrium in there that's probably lower than that. Um, but, you know, if each town suddenly had 10 rental units, like just, just take Northern Door for an example, because Sturgeon Bay has actually built a lot of stuff in the last few years. But if you took Northern Door and you said Bailey's Harbor has 10, Ephraim adds 10, Gibraltar adds 10, Egg Harbor, Sister Bay, Liberty Grove, you, you pretty quickly get, okay, now we got 60 rental units. So it's not one like big 60 unit place that's this m- massive compound of housing. If you just had 10 of those in each town that were rental units for seasonal use, okay, that's a lot of employees. And then you take, if each of them had 10 to 20 year-round rental apartments, or even just three of those towns had 10 to 20 year-round apartments, and then each town has a small fraction of affordable homes to purchase, maybe that number is six in each town. Well, now you're getting to the point where you're pretty quickly getting up to 150 to 200 units. That makes a big dent. Um, And once people get those units, now they've got a foot in the door, they've got consistent rent, or they've got, uh, they get their first home to purchase, which means they build some equity and maybe they can go out into the other market. And now that home is back in the affordable market for the next person. So there's, it's not just build 200, a 200 unit complex in one spot. Well, I'm it seems glad. a lot more, it, it seems, I, I like to think of it that way because it seems easier to bite off and attack the problem. Yeah. It seems like it's doable. It doesn't yeah. just sound like we have to solve affordable housing. It's like, well, here's, if we can get 10 units in each place, that will get us a considerable amount of way there. We'll, yeah. we'll be in a, a much better position there than we are right now. And let's say you did that and each one was proposed by somebody different. And now you have a small business owner who's now operating a 10 unit place. So you're approaching housing from a small business perspective versus a big box perspective. Like what you, I like what Todd Helene is doing because he looks at it. He's a local guy investing in his local community and the revenue, even if it's small from affordable housing is going to come back to him to reinvest in his community and, and in his family and his future versus say a company out of Appleton doing renting and pulling that stuff somewhere else. Um, keeping it local, keeping it in our community is the best case scenario versus say like when some people look at economic recovery and they go for the big fish, they go for the big blue whale and go, we need to pull a Walmart in or we need to pull someone from the outside in to solve our problem. And now you're, you spend a lot of dollars trying to acquiesce to that big fish. Right. I'm glad that we were able to have that discussion and it was a fairly optimistic one because I don't know. Right. Yeah. And I don't know uh, how optimistic the next conversation is going to be uh, because I'm curious what's going on with COVID-19. Well, it's, it's not great. Not great, Bob. Um, (laughs) The, 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 this week in the last week we had 65 new cases reported, which is the most in a long time Um, up from, I think 49 the week prior to that. So we're seeing more cases on the flip side. We're not seeing, new hospitalizations locally. Um, there's been a smattering here and there, but it's it's not going up the way it used to be, which is an indication that the vaccines are working to lessen the impact of the disease. The majority of them are still unvaccinated people. As Dr. James Heiss continues to say, 
this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yes, vaccinated people have gotten COVID-19. There are those breakthrough cases, but they're not falling seriously ill. They are not being hospitalized. They are not dying, um, except for in rare instances. But unvaccinated people, you know, those those rates are actually higher than they were a year ago because the Delta variant is becoming um, more difficult to fight. Um, one of the things that's interesting now in talking to Sue Powers and Dr. Heiss is the the capacity at the hospitals is actually lower than it was before, even though the the hospitalizations haven't spiked from COVID necessarily, they're, they're up, but they have in Northeast Wisconsin, they're up, but they're not nearly at the level of the peak of the pandemic. But at the peak of the pandemic, the hospitals were not doing elective surgeries or not many of them. The people were not going to the hospital with the flu and a lot of other diseases because those diseases weren't circulating because people were staying home, wearing masks and not socializing indoors. Well, now that so many people have returned to those practices, hospitals are very busy right now. Um, so right in the peak of the pandemic, most of the time when I'd be watching that data, it, somewhere between like 75 and 80% of hospital beds were in use. At a couple times, it would spike into the 80s and high 80s. But for the most part, it was in like the high 70s, low 80s. Right now, it's 88% of beds in Northeast Wisconsin are full. And Dr. Heiss said that, you know, a couple days a week, all of the beds in Northeastern Wisconsin right now will be full. Not because of COVID, but just all those other things that people are going and getting treatment for. So if... The unvaccinated population does get a surge in COVID cases that lead to hospitalizations in Northeast Wisconsin. Even it wouldn't take a large one to suddenly exceed the capacity of the hospitals and leave people with other injuries and other issues, heart attacks, cancer, <laughs> uh, childhood flu, all sorts of things on the outside looking in when it comes to get a hospital bed. Yeah, that's the thing that I remember we had talked about a lot early on in this is that the worry isn't that you'll get COVID and have to go to the hospital. The worry at this point is if you have to go to the hospital at all, you might not be able to, right. you might not be able to in a timely fashion. So even if you don't get COVID, if you get in a car accident or break your arm or have a heart attack or get sick or whatever other reason you would need to go to the hospital for, if they don't have a bed for you, then that makes your situation far more worse yeah. Than it would be regardless. So it's not just a, well, I'm not getting vaccinated and I, you know, I won't get COVID or if I do get COVID, it won't be bad. It's like that mentality across a, num a large enough number of people means that, you know, even if you don't get COVID, the people who are getting COVID coupled with regular hospital use, it, 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 we're looking at a much bigger problem right now than we may have been a year ago. Right. And that's the thing that's scary because even if you're vaccinated, you are still in danger of, you know, missing out on the care that you need because of, of this thing going on, even though you're vaccinated. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's been really a concern from day one in, in many ways was like, you can't overrun the system and people don't understand that even now, I, I don't think a lot of people understand, don't understand that um, hospitals like any business trying to cover their costs or any nonprofit trying to cover their costs. Um, you don't operate with a ton of excess capacity at all times. Like a hospital generally tries to operate, my understanding from the conversations I've had over the last year with many people in, in the industry, 65 to 70% of beds full all the time because you you wouldn't open a restaurant and only aim to fill 30% of your seats all the time and always have 70% excess capacity. Your restaurant probably doesn't survive. Same thing with hospitals. They can't operate a hospital and always have all this excess capacity because then your numbers don't work. 
So they need to fill most of those beds at most times to be a decent, well-run and efficient business. Um, so it's not like there's all this cushion available. And right now hospitals are back to taking all these other patients and doing all these other things. And that's going to put the crimp on dealing with a COVID surge if it were to happen. Right. Anything else on COVID before we, uh, we have one last thing I want to talk about, but anything else before we move on? On the plus side, vaccines, I mean, locally, Door County is second in the state in vaccination rate, only second only to Dane County in the numbers I looked at this morning. Statewide vaccinations were up again this week. They've been rising just a little each week for several weeks now to the most we've had since June, the week of June 13th. So more people are getting vaccinated. Um, you know, it's, it's a slow creep to get there, but more are doing it. Yeah. I think if you get vaccinated right now, you get a hundred dollars too. You do. Yeah. So, I mean, they will pay you to get vaccinated. So there's our, there's our pitch for it. Lastly, that this week I wanted to talk about the Alzheimer's walk that is going to be in Sturgeon Bay on Saturday. Tell me about this mouth. Yeah. So it's the Alzheimer's association puts on the walk to end Alzheimer's. Um, they haven't had it in a couple of years because, uh, obviously didn't have a COVID last year. They will be doing it in person this Saturday, uh, leaves from Grand Park in Sturgeon Bay, right along, right at the foot of the Maple to Oregon Street Bridge. And it's a two, about a two mile walk down Memorial Drive and back. So a pretty walk. Um, I will be down there um, doing a brief stint emceeing the event and at the introductions. And then I'll be walking it as well. People do this, you know, it's not a huge event. But uh, for the people involved, it's very personal. For myself involved, it's very personal. Um, I lost my mother to Alzheimer's in January. And uh, as you can tell, it's still a little raw and difficult to talk about. Um, and it's a, it's a terrible disease. It's a, um, and, and my family, fortunately, didn't have to go through the worst version of it. But a lot of people do. And I've talked to a lot of caregivers. Um, and once uh, my mom was diagnosed, I found out how many people up here actually do deal with this. So many friends of mine that I didn't know were dealing with some, a loved one with Alzheimer's or a friend with Alzheimer's and just the burden that puts on a family and, and especially the primary caregiver. In my case, it was my father. Um, and it's, it's tough. It's, it's a really tough disease. And in a community where so many people are 65 and older, the, you know, Alzheimer's is a, a disease of the elderly for the most part. Um, you know, that's 30% of our population. So if you extrapolate the numbers nationwide, you're looking at about a thousand people in Door County dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia at any given moment. That's a lot of people in our community. And that's a lot of caregivers. So you're talking once you once you think about each person having, you know, two to three caregivers that are really deeply impacted by that disease, you're looking at four or 5,000 people in our community that are, are grappling with some of the ramifications and effects of the disease. Um, and it's, there's, there's been a little bit of progress. There are some drugs that have some, some hope now. Um, but you know, the walk to end Alzheimer's, they set a goal of trying to raise, I think $10,500 to fight Alzheimer's to fund research. Um, and so that this walk is just to kind of raise awareness of that, drive some fundraising um, and for people who've dealt with it just to um, sorry <laughs> um, just to remember and, and celebrate the people that they lost yeah uh, how can people get involved uh, how can people support the walk what do people need to know about getting involved all right so if you want to get involved uh, the the best way to go is to visit the Alzheimer's Association website 
That's act.alz.org. And then within that, you can search for their events and you can find the local chapter and find a little bit more about it. Um, there's People can show up and just walk. There's no fee to uh, take part. And it's the, the event starts with welcoming people at 8.30 a.m. on Saturday at Graham Park. The walk begins at 10 a.m. Um, probably go till... Uh, 1040, 11 a.m., somewhere in that range. And um, while there is no fee to participate, uh, fundraising is encouraged, donations are encouraged. Um, so if you or a loved one have been impacted by Alzheimer's and just want to uh, either meet other people who have gone through it, um, find some resources, um, raise some money, or just uh, take a nice walk with, with friends uh, Saturday at Grand Park. That sounds like it's going to be a, a really cool event, and it's for a really great cause. So thanks for sharing and uh, i hope people show up to it i think it'll be cool so do i i will be there (laughs) if you if nothing else if you just want to see miles mc an event check him out there (laughs) a very short mcing stint yes locals celebrity miles danhausen will be mcing uh is there anything else that people need to know about this week this is a great podcast with great energy this week i enjoyed it quite a bit we've covered a lot of ground um no that's it. That's yeah. everything that you possibly need to know. This Perfect. Week. Don't you love when podcasts end with the host congratulating themselves about how good the podcast yeah. episode went? <laughs> uh, well, that, well, that's when you know it's good, right? That, that's true. We, we do get a, a lot of positive feedback on the podcast, but we don't get nearly enough to satisfy me. So I have to give it to myself every once in a while. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Miles, thank you for chatting with me. And I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.